1: Hey everyone and welcome to the Filius Club, this is episode 84, we're in March 2017 and in this special we're going to be talking about Zimbabwe. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fideos Club. My name is Patrick Beja, and this is a special episode. Uh, usually what we do is that we get different people from different countries to talk about the world events. Uh, but in special episodes, we get one or two people from one specific uh, area of interest or, or country, and we talk about that country specifically. Um, and today we're going to do that about uh, Zimbabwe uh and before we launch into uh the the conversation itself i just want to mention that we're uh, going to be focusing on the daily life in zimbabwe and going to uh, uh, uh not talk about all of the uh political aspects of it which are very pecu- peculiar but we're really going to talk about how life is in zimbabwe and try to get you an idea of what happens uh you know to how people go about uh, their business on a daily basis and uh, hopefully you haven't heard about this a lot so it will bring you a little bit of uh, awareness i know that certainly for me that's the case so uh let me welcome to the show uh, first bongai uh, i as i always say i hope i'm not uh, mispronouncing your name but welcome to the show bongai thank you patrick so you are native of Zimbabwe. You've been living there for a long time and you're a, uh, as you described it, a businessman.
0: Yeah, I um, wasn't born in Zimbabwe. My parents lived in, in Zambia at the time. Uh, my father was declared persona non grata. So I right. moved back when I was one, but I've been here pretty much my whole life.
1: Okay. And uh, so you're a businessman. You, you used to do a little bit of uh, radio as well. And, um, yeah, yeah.
0: Well, radio, I used to host a, a radio show on Star FM, which is uh, Zimbabwe's biggest urban radio station, and I also used to host a show called The Bottom Line, which is a business radio show. With different guests coming on, uh, representing different sectors of the economy, uh, occasionally getting representatives from government as well, just uh, giving insight on on things that are going on in and around the country. And my business is uh, mainly in hospitality,
1: uh, casual dining and bars. All right, cool. Thank you very much. Uh, and we also have Bruce, um, who... Uh, I, so you, you were born in Zimbabwe, actually, but you're uh, originally European and now you're back in uh, Ireland, right? Uh, Scotland at the moment. So. Same thing. It's like <laughs> the countries around, you know, in the UK, it's, it's fine.
2: Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like you're, you're from Spain, Patrick. Yeah, um, basically. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, um, I, I was I was born in Zimbabwe to uh, parents who were from um, from from Europe. Um, mother was Italian and dad was English, but they were. I've often say they were more more uh, Zimbabwean than I was because they lived there for longer <laughs> than I did. Um, um, but currently live in Scotland with with uh, wife and kids, uh, working for, working for a very exciting job in the council. Which which we won't go into details.
1: So. <laughs> it sounds fascinating. Um, but all right, so you did live uh, for a couple of decades in in Zimbabwe, and I think you tried to go back, but you couldn't find work. So um, is my understanding. So you have a deep uh, seeded love for for the country um is my understanding and yeah
2: sorry patrick yeah zimbabwe zimbabwe will always be my spiritual home um i I was born there i left when i was 23 uh and then went back for a couple of years a few years ago and just just couldn't find the work and
1: um well with a family i'm sure it must be a little bit difficult i I do go
2: go back every couple of years on holiday to, to to see my family so um Right. You know, I, I love the country and I love the people
1: um, And so actually, Bongai and Bruce, you've known each other uh, forever um, You're uh, you're friends and you've known each other since the your childhood
2: It's probably going on, what,
1: 34 years now, Bruce?
2: I would say that We met in, I think it was the first day in junior school We went to the same junior school together um, uh, my mum my always loved the story that uh, on the first day I've, I tripped over something and and Bon was the only guy to uh, to come over and offer to pick me up or help me up. So she was, um, and that was our first. I think day it was a gym. case
0: of a case of us fat kids having to hang out together, mate.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, we're both we're both substantial people. Uh, bon Guy's <laughs> taken advantage of it recently. He started the gym, but uh, I've I've kind of let myself go.
1: Well, so let's first, first of all, I know, as I joked about when we, before we started recording, I know nothing about Zimbabwe. Uh, I'm basically the biggest Zimbabwe noob that you'll ever find. I hope I don't make too much of a uh, fool of myself. I already started, you know, by equating Scotland with Ireland, but I'm going to try and not to do that too much in uh, the next few uh, couple of minutes. But um for me Zimbabwe is basically yeah it's that country it's a country in Africa right the big like Africa is one thing and Zimbabwe is a part of it and that's my extent the extent of my knowledge of Zimbabwe so i apologize to basically everyone in the world for being an idiot um but let's let's start with that i'm actually intrigued by uh your you know your first days of school how how do that how does that go in zimbabwe uh, maybe bonga you know if if you ask me i have a very uh caricatural image of zimbabwe i'm not even sure you know if we go to the extreme i'm like oh so it's like you have to walk uh, 20 miles uh, to go to the school in like a village where that doesn't have electricity or water like obviously you know i don't know where you were but i'm guessing that's not the case uh but how does that go you go to school what do you do you wake up you take a bus you go there you have uh, eight hours of school uh how does it go the first few um hours of the day in the school
0: i think what you've got to understand is is zimbabwe is a bit of a dichotomy between the rural and urban and the majority of zimbabwean population is very rural So the rural lifestyle that they're exposed to is very different from one that we grew up with. And rural lifestyle is probably the caricature that uh, most people would have an understanding of. You know, people waking up early in the morning, um, having to do chores before they get to school. Young girls might be the ones responsible for sorting out water, etc., and helping their mothers cook. And yes, in the rural areas, people tend to walk to school. Um, Some do walk long distances going to school. Um, when you contrast that with the urban, urban life, there's also a dichotomy in urban life and what we have, the, the, the low density suburbs, as we call it. And what we have high density suburbs. So your low density suburbs tend to be your more affluent suburbs. So there's middle class to, to upper class, high end houses and your high density tend to be your blue collar working life. Um, people in the in the high-density suburbs, as we call them, blue-collar workers, the kids who go to school will definitely be catching public transport to get to school. A lot of the schools will be in those areas as well, but some people will cross town and go to different schools. And then the more affluent suburbs, uh, your low-density suburbs, people will definitely be going to school yeah, by car. I mean, when we grew up, we used to ride to school. Some guys used to walk to school if they, they lived pretty close by. And the curriculum is... Is pretty much the same across the board. Um, we have a number of different examination boards that uh, people will will be able to subscribe to, and a lot of them are international. Mm-hmm. Predominantly used to be very British in the system, with the Cambridge Examination Board, but now people even do the IB International Baccalaureate. Um, you have a number of international schools. My my kids go to the French school, so that's a, a, a French. Excellent, I
1: approve that. <laughs>
0: Very good. So uh, that's a, uh, a French school. So they they they, they learn in uh, multiple languages, and that follows you know the French system. So my son went in, and he was in très petit section, and you know mm-hmm. uh, my daughter's in moyen section, and so that you have those schools. You have the international schools as well, and but the majority of Zimbabweans will go to. As Zimbabwean school, so the school that Bruce and I went to, uh, St John's, uh, it was a it was a school in an affluent suburb, and uh, you know we grew up in a in a very very good environment, you know where we had fantastic teachers, great environment, we had milk at break time, you know ten o'clock in the morning you we went out and ran around and played in the fields, very big on sport. Zimbabwe is a very sporty country, so there's lots of organised sport. And as kids, we played uh, a number of different sports. We had cu- clubs as well. I think Bruce and I probably both played chess. There's choirs, there's drama. There's a whole lot of activities at junior school level. And as you progress and go through senior school, those those are added on as well. Um, Bruce and I went to separate senior schools. But uh, at my senior school, you had a range of different activities and sports. I mean, we had shooting Guys were members of the shooting club, you could be in the choir, you could be playing instruments, a cappella, or playing first team rugby. So there was a lot of progression as we grew older. Uh, schools tended to be really focused on academics and sport, but a big cultural wave came through in Zimbabwe in the mid-90s, and there were a lot more activities going on. In, the, in different schools. Not to say that didn't exist before, but they're now put on par. There was a time when if you didn't play first team rugby, you weren't recognized for your skills and talents, but people had the opportunity to express themselves in different ways. And uh, so I think it was a very I'm good sorry, thing.
1: Uh, when you say w- if you didn't play rugby, you weren't recognized for your talents in rugby? or
0: like, <laughs> No, I'm so, in, 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 it, rugby was the epitome traditionally so if you look at most schools and still is to to a large extent the probably one of the most important schools important sports in private schools and to in some of your top government schools what i'm saying is that then there was that progression that recognized people who did different things so if your skill was was music it was also equally recognized. So it wasn't just a case of a hierarchy that it was rugby and nothing else. So you had a lot of people who now had the opportunity to to express themselves and playing musical instruments, being in debating, being in Toastmasters, and they would be awarded school colors and awarded for be, excelling in that.
1: So you mean there were a few areas that are um, uh, socially more valued, you know, from a, a- uh, I don't know, uh, academics or just recognized point of view. And and you would do those things and you would be looked at. Uh, the The first image that came to my mind is the one of, you know, the jocks in American movies where it's like, if you're yep. par- part of that crowd, then you're awesome. And if you're not, then maybe you're not treated as well by the your fellow <laughs> school friends or things like that. Is that equivalent?
0: Uh, that, that's how it was a lot mm-hmm. when we grew up. And I'm sure Bruce can share on that. And uh, as we progressed through high school, there was a, a lot of equalization of that, and okay. that people who weren't as sporty got recognized, which I think is, is a fantastic thing.
2: Mm. You, you, I, I, th- I think, uh, sorry, Patrick, I, I think sure. Bongai and, and, and I sort of went, went to senior school during that transition. Um, but there was very much uh, that American... Um, characterization of American football as to rugby was very, very similar, you know, Mm. it's it's a good one, I think. Okay.
1: So what you're describing here sounds uh, like a pretty good, you know, pretty amazing environment. And I'm curious, you did mention that there is a lot of, you know, there are a lot of differences between the different neighborhoods and the rural areas and the um, urban areas Uh, What you're describing sounds like a wonderful environment to to grow up in. How different would it be in other uh, uh, areas? I mean, I guess my question is, how unique and exceptional was that environment? Was it really, you know, a few schools in the country or did everyone have more or less of a, a similar environment to grow up in?
0: Sure. I think if you look at the schools, you've definitely got your private schools, and your private schools tend to be the more well-resourced schools. Mm -hmm. And uh, greater parent participation uh, encourages uh, and ensures that the schools are able to offer a wide range of skills. So you'll have parents who will come in and coach and assist and uh, various Mm -hmm. donations made and equipment. Then Then you have what are your Your government schools, but then there's also top tier government schools which have good alumni networks, which also help and provide support. And then there are government schools that aren't as well resourced. However, when you look at it from an environment of where you grow up, the ability to play sports, you know, great weather, pretty much 12 months of the year, you know, we have a very short winter and even then it's not bitingly cold. You've got a lot of activity, you know, kids very much are encouraged to run around and play. There's lots of after school clubs um, and you can get very involved in those clubs and activities. And when when I look at it in terms of country to bring up children, even though we are going through a number of challenges here, I've lived in a few other countries around the world and I would struggle to find a, a better country to bring up children in anywhere in the world. Bruce?
2: Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd I'd agree. Although I did move away when when we when we have children, but I think um, it, it, it a lot of it depends on being able to find the right work, um, and also uh, there's a kind of um, mentality, I suppose, in Zimbabwe that you need to be able to have. It's it's a kind of. Uh, forging ahead uh make a plan do what you can make your own you know sort yourself out and uh that was something i never really uh got to grips with uh in a major way um i'm quite happy to uh i, I never liked the fact that um uh the the the, the medical system there is very much uh, based on it's almost an american system isn't it uh, bongai um where, where you you know you you, you there's no there's no Government medical um, coverage, uh, like an like NHS? It. No, no, nothing like that. Um, and also, uh, I think um, I I don't know. It, I've I've kind of lost the track of the question. I just I just wanted to go back a bit, Patrick, if if you don't mind. And we're talking sure. about um, uh, gr- growing up in Zimbabwe. And I think I think one of the things that w- I think needs to be stressed that 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 it was like. Uh, in Zimbabwe. And I think still is, is that when you look at inequalities, and and I work where I work, we 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 actually do in across Scotland, we look at inequalities, um, people in different um uh deprivation bands. Um I think in Africa they're much more con- con- contrasted. Uh and in Zimbabwe, well I know in South Africa and Zimbabwe where I've where I've lived, it's much more contrasted. You're gonna have the well off are going to have a lot of uh, a lot and those who don't have a lot um as Bongai said you know the, there are people who will have to go to you know the 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 young the girls in the family will go and get water in the morning uh from from the wells and um sorry just
1: that. that's the second times you guys have referenced the fact that the girls are <laughs> going to go get water and help the yep. the the women uh, cook and things like that I'm curious why, and and then, sorry, it's an interruption, but why the girls, you know? Why it, do you feel that you need to mention that the girls will do it? What do the boys do? Are they, you know, basically that question? Th- th-
2: Guy can probably give more to this, but I think there's more of a, a, a sort of cultural divide there. When you look at uh, the Shonan de Bele and the, the actual um, African cultures, it's still... It's getting better. I don't know, Bongai. You might, you might be better to answer this one.
0: I think, well, like you said, it's very traditional, patriarchal. Um, we are old school in our communities, and there's very much a, 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 a big division of labor, division of roles. Um, there is, you know, for fear of sounding sexist, women's work and men's work. And I'm saying that's not my terminology, but that's how things are perceived. In, in, in an urban setting, it might not be as, as uh, abrupt or as, uh, as defined as that. Mm. But, yeah, stark, exactly. That's a good But uh, it, it's still relevant. You know, a lot of people will, women are homemakers. They tend to be. Even if a woman goes to work, you know, there is an expectation that she'll come home and cook for her husband and keep a good house, which is interesting as well because we have a culture which, you know, Across the board, even people who live in uh, the high-density suburbs, the less affluent, will have domestic workers. So someone who can be living in a non-affluent suburb but will still have a maid, uh, might not necessarily have a gardener. But that's also, yeah, it's, it's also something very striking that uh, we have, which doesn't really apply around many places in the world. Sub-Saharan Africa is big when it comes to having domestic workers, uh, in terms of uh, helpers, gardeners, uh, maids, who uh, cooks as well. Mm. So for the for the for women who are in more affluent areas, they don't have to have that same social burden of having to cook and clean. Whereas um, the lower you are, you will even if you do have domestic help who comes in occasionally, there will still be an emphasis on women being the the homemaker. So so that's uh engendered into the children from a very young age. Boys in rural areas will go and herd cattle, will go and work in the fields, the girls will do the domestic work along with with uh, getting water, etc. So yeah, very patriarchal society that we live in and uh, sort of gender roles are defined at a very early age. Okay, that, that
1: makes sense. Um, so do you mean that they do that, the children do that before going to school in the morning?
0: Most likely, yeah. So um, cattle you cattle and getting res- water
1: and all of this before school?
0: Some would, some would, not mm-hmm. all. Uh, it's hard to generalize and say that that's what everyone does across the board. Um, but uh, if you look at... Uh, the kids, the girls will probably almost do that definitely when they wake up in the morning. Mm. Um, boys, it would depend on, on, on what chores they have. They might come back and do them. Uh, there was a time when it was considered that, you know, sending girls to school, et cetera, is also a waste of time or waste of money when you had limited money. But now you know, there's a lot more education. People are really enlightened and it's, it's important. I mean, we look at Zimbabwe, we've got the highest literacy rate in Africa, 92% um that that's come about because people recognize the value of education so, most, so while uh, they might
1: most girls even in rural areas would go to to school i'm guessing until at least 12 or 13 or even longer yeah.
0: Pri- primary education is definitely something that that is almost universal Okay. um and uh, then, obviously, the, the the constraints when it comes to funding, etc., might might have some level of limitation on how far people go. It was a very big thing in the past, but I think it's got significantly better. And you know, parents realize that you know, education is one of the the the, the best paths out of poverty.
1: You know, so I want to get back to. Uh... Men's jobs and women's jobs. I'm curious to, to hear about that a little bit more. But before we go there, uh, maybe a question I should have asked earlier. I just realized, um, could you tell us? For you, uh, how is Zimbabwe different from the rest of, let's maybe not go to the, to the entire continent of Africa, but maybe the, the rest of sub Saharan Africa? You mentioned there's a very high literacy rate. Or how do you, would you guys from Zimbabwe uh, say, you know, describe the differences between you and the, the few uh, other countries?
0: That's an interesting question. Um, if you look at some South Africa, Namibia, Zambia, I think there's a lot of similarities. Obviously South African economy is more developed and they've got better infrastructure, but in terms of who we are as people, I think we've got a lot of similarity, um, between your, 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 your different areas and in terms of even the way the way that the cities and towns are built up with your high density suburbs or South Africa, they will call them the townships um, and your, your local, the sa- same kind of zoning, uh, but it happens. And then what you'll have is also in terms of culture, you know, there is strong black culture and the certain perceptions around it where things like your dowry, you know, lobola, mm. same name in Zimbabwe it's in Southern Africa will have those similar themes. Um, families getting together, the gatherings, the community, etc. Then extending in, even into what I call the blend of black and white culture. Um, you know, bries, which you call barbecues, um, or we call them bries, but the barbecues very similar. That you know, that rugby culture we spoke about very similar. Uh, I think we probably have more familiarity or similarities with South Africa and Namibia and Zambia to to a certain extent. Um, when you look at some of the other countries in southern sub-Saharan Africa, it's a little bit different. Um, you might see Kenyans as well. They're Nyama Choma, also gathering. We all like to gather around meat. Um, and I think it's very interesting as well. Here we are talking about rugby, but football is the biggest sport in the country and football is the biggest sport in Africa. So you'll have a lot of people going down to the games and supporting their teams and wearing their colors. So I I think there's a lot of similarity, but the further north you go in Africa, I think the less and less similarities that we have. um, So what will start to
1: to differentiate? What will be the things that are different if you go further north?
0: I think just think if you think of language. Um, We speak a lot of English in this part of the world. Um, English has become the lingua franca. And particularly when you look at Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe you've got two major although we've got sixteen official languages, you've got three major languages, Shona, English, and Debele. And Does everyone speak English? Most people do. Hmm. Most people do. Can't say every single person, but most people do. And that's the language of instruction at schools. There has been a lot of discussion and debate around whether we need to have languages, or we need to have, excuse me, certain subjects being taught in in local languages and local dialects, and the need for that, you know, which involves a whole major change to the curriculum, because, like I said, the language of instruction is Inshana. Oh, I'm sorry, is English. So people are talking about teaching mathematics in Shana, teaching it uh, chemistry and physics in in those languages to say that. It gives kids who have those languages, the primary language, the opportunity to excel. So you'll find that the average person in Zimbabwe
1: speaks so, a minimum so, of two languages. Sorry, the, the idea is that the, their primary language would be not English. And English is, as you said, the, the lingua franca, franca, so everyone speaks it to understand each other, but it's not necessarily the native language of most people. So you, you it would be interesting to change some of the curriculum to those languages so that they can actually do better, right? Is that the logic absolutely. behind it? Absolutely,
0: absolutely. Hmm. So if you're saying we've got a country that has 92% literacy, you've got the cornerstones and the basics of, of, of developing uh, a community and a, and a society that's educated. But sometimes you might be hindering certain kids because that they, while they speak English, English is not their first language. You know, someone will have to speak, think in one language, then translate back. And I'm sure many non-native English speakers will understand that when you hear a word, you translate it into one language, translate it back. And mm-hmm. even though the synapses are firing, there is that little delay. <laughs> and sometimes it also results in a, in, in a lack of comprehension. So there has been a push for that, a lot of debate. Um, and right now, you know, there's, 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 there's advocates on both sides. Some people saying it's a waste of time. And how do we develop the, 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 the language? You know, I'm one of the advocates of, of, of promoting it because every, every, every language is dynamic and you learn things. I mean, you even think about English, you know, pre-internet, you know, we wouldn't have talked about phishing on Bitcoin and, and, uh, capture, <laughs> You know, things like that, which are now just common phrases. You know, in France, you've got the Académie Française, which right. will, you know, curate language and add uh, language in, in, well, they'll look at it and say, you know, we, we don't have a we word like that We need that new
1: word or we'll invent exactly, one word. Yeah, exactly. yeah.
0: Exactly, yeah. So I think that, that that's important.
1: Yeah, it's it's definitely, you know, something that, I can relate to, uh, I speak a a few different languages and something that struck me when I first started really learning and really speaking a different language was how it's not just about, you know, not just about learning the language, but it also brings you when you, when you finally are comfortable enough in that language that you don't need to translate in your own head the new language when you're speaking or thinking in that different language i think it it changes the way you it's hard to explain but the way you react the way you uh you are really but language i truly believe this i'm a different person when i mainly speak french and when i mainly speak japanese or when i mainly speak english you know it it changes the way you perceive the world and the way you react to the world. So I definitely understand what you're saying when you're um, talking about about that. Um, But so for people listening who only speak one language, I think that's a really interesting uh, thing. Like uh, culturally, it's a wonderful experience to have that richness. And when I say I always listen to, you know, I always watch movies or TV shows in their in their regular, you know, their original language and try to read subtitles. That's part of the reason. You lose something when you translate. There's no way around it. So anyway, that's a slight Absolutely. digression. <laughs> digression but, um, uh. So uh, there's one thing you referenced earlier, which I want to come back to really quickly. Uh, for just a second, but you did mention that you have, um, I can't remember how you put it, but mixed, uh, you know, uh, black and white, uh, populations. I'm looking at Wikipedia right now, uh, and, um, in Zimbabwe specifically, uh, the black African population is the, by far the largest majority, uh, 99, over 99% and 0.2% of white Africans. So since we have Bruce here and you, and you met in school, um, I don't want to delve into caricature and that's why maybe i didn't ask it initially but i i am curious um how you know how was it to to uh have a, a white friend is it was it a common thing because maybe of your uh, environment and your school was it were there a lot of white people was it weird to be friend with friends with a white person just you know uh, um your thoughts on that
0: I think just having Bruce as a friend is a bit of a weird thing, eh? <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> Maybe that's because of Bruce himself and not because he's white. Maybe he's weird. But, uh... <laughs> well,
0: I, I, actually, I, it'll be fun if Bruce keeps you first because you know white people are, are a minority in Zimbabwe. So it'll be interesting to look at it from a minority perspective, and I'm happy to chip in afterwards, yeah. From
2: um, minority? Well, it's interesting you say that, Bonga, because... I mean, the schools we went to, we were, they were mostly white, though, weren't they? I
0: mean, when huh? Not at Saint John's in our year. Yeah. Of, of what was it? Sixty odd kids. There are only two black guys in our year.
1: Really? So, yeah. Okay. So you were, <laughs> you managed to be <laughs> the minority in Zimbabwe <laughs> by being black. It's, it,
2: and and it was like that f- through a lot of my um, growing up in zimbabwe Mm. it was very much uh uh, white dominated you wouldn't you wouldn't believe it and you wouldn't think it um but it was very white dominated it was only it's only really recently that the more affluent schools have become um you know more black uh Mm. and and obviously it's a good thing it's you know it needs to happen um uh, but i grew up in a very uh i wouldn't say i think i think protected um
1: sheltered i was I, I would
2: i think i was in i was very much in a cocoon uh, growing up i didn't realize um 99 of the issues going on around me um because you know I, I grew up and most of my friends were white i had black friends and you know it, uh, there was never there was never really a question in my head about about that but it was always accepted that you know the, the 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 maid or or the the, that I'm using inverted commas your yeah, help um, was always going to be black. You know, would have been very strange to have a white maid or a white garden gardener um, growing up. So, so was um, there,
1: there was a certain... moment when you you realized? You know, you it, I'll I'll share a a very quick story here, maybe that it can relate to that in a <laughs> weird way. Uh, my mom was born in Egypt, grew up in Lebanon, or, you know, part of her childhood, and she has a, a, an accent when she speaks French. And I remember I was about 18 or 19, and um, I was speaking with her, and she said, oh, I went to do these administrative things, and the the person in front of me uh, realized I had an accent, and she she asked where I was from, blah, blah, blah. And I looked at her bewildered, and I was like, accent? What do you mean? Like, and and she said, "Well, my accent." You know, I I speak French with an accent." I'm like, "No, you don't." What what are And it took me like it was 18 years of my life that sort of changed in an instant when I realized that my mom had an accent, which I didn't think she did. She was just, you know, my mom and that's what how she spoke, and it was French. So I didn't, you know, it didn't compute. Did you have a similar moment um when you realized uh-huh. Wait! All the help is black. What? What is? You know? What's? There is something right here.
2: I I don't think I don't know. It's kind of strange to, to to think about it, but I don't think there was a moment for me. I think it was a realization, and it was it was only when I moved to, well, I first went to university for a bit in South Africa, but then I moved to London uh, in my early 20s, and mm. I started to look back, and it wasn't, I can't say I put my finger on, a, on an exact moment, but I started to look back and think, hold on a second here, you know, uh, I, this word privilege is, is thrown around a lot these days, and I think it can be overused by by some of the far left, um, but I think that there is something in that, and saying that I had a very privileged upbringing, and, um, and... The, the the fact that my skin colour played a lot into it was, you know, had a lot to do with it. Uh, even even going, Zimbabwe had been independent for what twenty years. There was still there's still ingrained. I don't know, Bangai. I don't know if you'd call. Uh, I don't know if you agree with this, but prejudices. I, I don't know if that's a too strong a word or not strong enough. But um, but gr- you know, growing up, I, I look back and think, wow. Um, I used to actually believe this. I used to actually think that this was the way things are and um you know certain people from certain backgrounds uh have certain places uh to put it bluntly and and it's a racist way to think and and it's it's very strange to think that um and to look back and suddenly realize it and uh, I've always been viewed as as almost being overly liberal by my family um and when I started to sort of question my upbringing a bit, it was a bit... um, It was a bit strange, I think, Patrick. It's strange to sort of talk about it here, but um, I've... It it still makes me uncomfortable to Mm. this day. And I, I don't think... I don't think there'll be it's not like i'm ashamed because you know you, you come from where you come from and you you learn from your surroundings and where you are but realizing you grew up in a very much a cocoon in a, in a bubble where uh, you didn't see uh, and i don't know Bongai, if you if you saw a lot of what was going on but you know, you didn't you didn't see really see the news of what was going on in the rest of the country and the you know some of the some of the hardships that people had you know i got in a car i got i'd got driven to school every day um, I had a I had a wonderful life. I'd play rugby after school, and I'd, uh, you know, chess club. As Bon Guy said, I was even I was even in a bridge club in, in senior school. i used to play bridge, <laughs> and uh, so you were
1: 80 um, in, in senior school, is what you're saying, playing bridge. <laughs>
2: yeah, but you well, know, my parents, I think... my parents were uh, ranked national, ranked uh, internationally in the, in the Ooh. late 70s. All you know, right, you see. Um, but yeah, so so that's that's it's an interesting. It's
1: uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead. No, I think it's it's really interesting what you're talking about with privilege, and it's kind of you know a lot of people will listen to this and think, pff, pff. of course, what are you talking about? You know, you were being dr- driven around all the helpless black, and of course, you could you know it's obvious privilege, but surely. These other situations are different. And I think obviously they are, but it's the, the, the char- characteristic of privilege that you don't really realize it. And I think when you do, you kind of try and justify it, even when it's smaller types of privilege. So, um, it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, uh frame of reference to put around it um but we'll we'll move on from from the topic fairly soon i just want to ask bongai if you have anything to add to that you know the way you look at it or uh, your experience with this and then we'll talk about other things
0: i think one thing you have to acknowledge is that in the time that we grew up privilege was predominantly race-based and it generally still is in the fact that you know, white people, while they might be minority in Zimbabwe, tend to be generally more affluent. So if you look at representation, well, there's only about 20,000, 30,000-odd white people in the country. They are probably more, uh, they've probably got a lot more wealth than, if you look at average numbers. So, growing up and being the only black guy in my class in grade one, it it was, it wasn't a star startling experience as such. It was just sort of fine because that's what I knew, you know, I went to school with a bunch of white boys. And as, as we went on more and more, there were other black guys that came into the class guys of uh, Indian Pakistani origin. It was more when I went to the high school that I, excuse me, the high school that I went to where it was contrasted, where there were a lot more black guys. And now when you look back at certain things that happened, at junior school, you do notice that, I wouldn't call it overt racism, but there were incidents which make you go, hmm. And, you know, having grown up in a privileged environment, I think, you know, Bruce and I are far from representative of what Zimbabwe is Mm. um, as two, two privileged kids. I think the irony, well not the irony, the reality is, Bruce is representative of the average white Zimbabwean and I'm definitely not representative of the average black Zimbabwean. Right, right. So that that probably paints the, the right kind of picture for you. Um, so, yes, affluence is a very, very acknowledged thing from an early age because I would get to see how relatives who weren't as affluent. And what you do in Zimbabwe from the black communities, we have a rural home. You know, Kumusha, that's a word in Shona, or Ekaya in Debele so there would always be trips to the rural home and that's when you can also get that contrast you know like I said the pr- majority of our population does live in the rural areas so you get the the practical realities that not everyone has running water and cable TV and uh, and internet so yeah privilege and affluence is, is a great reality but then again at the same time you know you can't make apologies for it it yeah. should be a certain standard which we want everyone to live to you know, everyone in the country should have running water. Everyone in the country should have access to, to things like the internet. And now, you know, obviously wasn't there when we grew up, but certain things should be certain basics. And I think that that's the important thing that we, we need for our country. So, we, yes, we live in a in a dichotomous environment. But then again, I don't think we should be making apologies for those who have. What we should be doing is to try to pull up those who don't have.
1: So I i 'm going to come back to the question of the internet, I think uh, towards the end of the show because I mainly cover technology, and that 's fascinating to me um, but the the uh, I wanted to ask how many people uh live in those rural areas? you know what percentage of the population does that represent um, and also is there a, um, a will or a trend of rural people trying to move to the cities to make a better a better life for themselves
0: yeah if you look at it statistically there's probably about seventy percent of our population lives in the rural areas hmm. and even within the rural areas the communities will will differ in some rural areas there are, are what we call growth points which are your 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 more built-up areas, you know, that do have your electricity and running water. And there's some very poor, you know, um, rural areas where people have to walk as far as 10 kilometers for fresh water, etc. And that, that's probably a big irony, so and we're very well-shielded from
1: this. When you were saying the girls need to get the water, uh, is that what you're talking about? Like in the morning, they'll walk 10 kilometers yeah. to, to and that, back to get the extreme. water in the
0: morning? That's, sure. yeah, that's an extreme but it's an extreme that exists. Mm. So I don't want to portray that to be the norm that everyone's waking up first thing in the morning at the crack of dawn to walk 10 kilometers to get fresh water. And also what you'll find is that they won't be doing that on a daily basis. So obviously it might be a couple of times a week and then they'll have their own storage facilities for that water. But I, I, just, I, I, I said that just to illustrate the fact that you do have those extreme cases, um, even within the rural areas, some people will have boreholes and pumps, and they'll have water that's running. You know, so it, there there exist those 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 different different elements within the rural areas. So rural population of Zimbabwe is about seventy percent. There was in the past a very strong urban migration, um, people moving to to the urban areas. But even within our urban areas, there is a, a lot of what I prefer to term underemployment. Um, And the reason I call it underemployment rather than unemployment is because we've we've informalized a lot of aspects of the economy. So you'll have a person who will be a plumber and he runs around doing private jobs for individuals as opposed to having a plumbing company that's registered and pays all its taxes, et cetera. So more cash in hand jobs. And he might not be as busy as he needs to be, but he has a form of employment. He's self-employed. So... A lot of jobs have been lost in the formal economy, but there's a big boom in the informal economy. So that migration that used to happen where people said, okay, I'm going into town, and I'm going to find a job, doesn't necessarily apply. So you've got, uh, there's a lot less uh, rural to urban migration going on right now.
1: Mm. So because people know that there isn't enough work for everyone in the, in the cities, right? Exactly.
0: Or if you are going to go, go into city,
1: you might, you're going to have to work for yourself.
0: Mm. But then a lot of people are looking at working for themselves as well. So it's it's not a guarantee to success in any shape, way, form or kind.
1: So talking about the cities for a little bit, could you describe, because I still don't have a really clear picture of what a city, a big city in Zimbabwe would be like, you know, do you have, I mean, obviously you have electricity and water and internet, so the infrastructure is there, but does everyone have a car do you have uh you know uh public transportation uh is there 35 i mean an hour and a half uh, uh commute every day for everyone if they want to go to work is there big companies like how paint us a picture of what a big city is in Zimbabwe? Bruce, do you want to go ahead and maybe contrast with where you live
2: uh, where 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 as in Zimbabwe or um uh, yeah, zimbabwe, I, I, where where i live in where 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 i live in scotland's very very um rural for 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 the first for scotland so it's it's a very different to contrast but um i think in in zimbabwe the uh the, the the public transport's very much for the the let's say blue collar workers i think uh if, you, if if that might be the best way to put it Definitely. um You'd very re- going just going back to the color thing. You'd very rarely find a white person on a public transport. Um, mm-hmm. Almost everyone uh, owns a car uh, in the cities. If you work, if you live, if you live in Harare, uh, which I never, I never lived in Bulawayo, Bonga. I don't know how different that was, even though I was born there. Um, you will own a car. Most families will have one person, one car. Um, people working in the city are uh, unless. Um, you know, those that commute in on the minibuses. Uh, uh but what what do they call them? Emergency taxis. Do they still call them that? We'll uh,
0: Commuter omnibuses now. Commuter yeah.
2: on omnibuses, that was it. It was emergency ca- taxis. They had the old Peugeot was it the five oh fours back in the day, wasn't it? Yeah, nice. um, <clears throat> um and uh, uh the roads are used a lot. They're used a, a lot, a lot. And one even in the two years I was back in Zimbabwe <laughs> <Darby and, laughs> Sorry?
1: Oh, you, you had a little bit of feedback. Don't worry.
2: Okay. Even even if the, um, uh, even in the two, I guess I went back in 2011 and I noticed in the two years I was back, the roads got more and more congested in that short time. Um, traffic jams became a real thing. Uh, but in saying that, my commute to work, I used to work in, in the industrial areas um, for, for my dad's company for a while. And uh, that was about a 25-minute, 30-minute drive into work from um, one of the suburbs, which was Borrowdale, into Granite Side, um, which I think would have been a fair commute. That was sort of what most people did during the, you know, during the day. Um, the cities themselves, I don't really have much of an insight into that, Bonga. I don't mm. really, you know, the, the 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 actual workings of how people run. Uh, how people get in? There were there were lots of commuter omnibuses coming in. People paying a fair amount of money in transport that was quite unreliable. Um, and so I think.
0: Go ahead, Bongo. Yeah, I think when you look when you look at it um, from a, from a, from a, from, a, from a, an urban perspective. Yeah you know, if you look at Harare you know we're, we're talking about sub-saharan africa you know
1: Harare tr- is the capital for, for
0: people who don't know Harare yes sorry it is the capital of zimbabwe you know when you contrast it with some of the cities like i said okay if you compare it with the joburg there's no comparison um you know joburg has a lot of highly developed uh, uh, public transport like bruce is talking about they've got the rail via they've got the How train um but a lot of people drive in joburg which is pretty similar to what happens here. You know, more affluent people drive, but also you've seen it cascading down as more and more people buy secondhand. You know, the secondhand Japanese car market is huge into Africa. So if someone can get a car for four dollars $5,000, I'm talking about US dollars, and they'll have a car landed here. And so you're finding a lot of middle class people who in our time rely, well, when we were growing up, relied on, on public transport are now big commuters themselves. So that's definitely added to the congestion when it comes to to traveling and commuting, but it's nothing like you know the the traffic that you 're going to see in Johannesburg or you're going to see even in Lusaka or in Nairobi with their with their notorious traffic jams
1: and, and that's so, a sign the the fact that they can afford these cars that's also you know part of the picture painting I was talking about It means that a, a four or five thousand uh, dollars investment is achievable for many people. And it means that the, the fact they can do that if they couldn't before uh, means the, the population is getting uh, uh, richer and more well-off, I'm guessing. It, it's not like the investment yeah. of a life lifetime to get a, a car. So
0: No, definitely not. Upward mobility is definitely something that's happening more and more. You see it in, even in terms of the type of houses that people are building. You know, and a person who's on a civil servant salary and civil service is the majority of the, the working population in Zimbabwe, can afford a car can afford to build a house you know will be able to get access to 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 lending etc which is a good thing um that's what you need you need to have that upward mobility start. you need to create a, a bigger a bigger middle class you know i think that's 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 an essential element people who have enough money to to be able to send the kids to the best schools that they can afford and focus on education, et cetera. I think that's a crucial aspect that that's, that's needed and is necessary in this country. Mm. Um, we're seeing it more and more. And, uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's a good thing. Yes. while the traffic jams might've increased. It's, it's still a good <laughs> thing that, uh, people have cars.
1: Yeah. So, um, the, if we, we talk about the, I didn't want to ask that question. So I'm going to get back to it. Uh, the women's job and men's job, uh, again, in the, with the idea of trying to paint a picture of what every day is like in, uh, in maybe the capital or where, you know, uh, uh, the big cities, what would be considered a, man, a man's job and a woman's job in those uh, urban areas?
0: Whoa! I mean, in the urban areas, like I said, a lot of people have domestic help. So, you know, back in the day, it might have been the man's job to take care of the garden, look after and the woman to clean and cook. But if people have got domestic help, whether you've got a maid, it might be the job of the wife to make sure that the maid is doing the work that's necessary. (laughs) You know, she will be the one who goes shopping. And likewise, the... Man of the house, make sure that the gardener is doing the necessary and doing the needful. But I don't think it's 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 too far different from you know what what happens in, in in homes all around the world. That you know a man must take responsibility for his family. And if you're in your house, you know doing the little DIY jobs that need to get done, making sure that bulbs are replaced, you know take your wife's car out and make sure that uh, it's, 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 it's it's in and good working order. In order. Exactly. I think those those are. Those are just the traditional roles that that, that we're all comfortable with. Yeah. I, I don't think you have a lot of the stereotypical old school attitudes still uh, prevailing. But there are probably pockets where it does exist, but you know, particularly in your in your urban environment. You're not really worried about, about things like that. It's not a case of this is woman's work. I'm not going to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up with a father that's very traditional, but you know, he'd cook dinner for us on the weekends. You know, I had no problem with wearing and washing dishes, etc. You know, I do the same thing for my kids. So, I, I, while I, while I, while I acknowledge that we, we, we live in a in a patriarchal society. You know, we aren't we aren't cavemen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Um, what about like uh, uh, employment? are there do women often work is there uh, you know does it extend to the to to this uh, state where women are very accepted in the workplace or how does it work in that uh, respect uh, absolutely
0: i think you find that a lot of women work and people need to work i mean you know growing up you know we can across the board you can see many families were were built up on both families working. And it's a crucial, you know. I, I when I grew up my mother went to work every day. She got had an opportunity to retire earlier. My father worked. So both 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 members of the family worked. I've got sisters, they're all work. Um, married and i not married and, and working is important. It's a, it's a, it's a key aspect of, of getting money for the, for, for the family coming through. And I don't think there's, there's, we live in a society where people frown upon women going to work, you know, going, women going to work is encouraged. Uh, It was just International Women's Day recently. And you, you see a lot of publicity and you see a lot of coverage of it going on in the press. In fact, the the, the radio station that I used to work for went through to one of the women's prisons and you know, carried out various programs and activities and they made donations. There's a lot going on in and around that. Um, in the past, when it's International Women's Day, certain radio stations would only have women broadcasting. Mm. You know, parliamentarians would be going out and having particular messages and activities in and around what's going on with regards to Women's Day. So women working and being accepted in the work environment, is it's, 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 it's just natural and it's very much part of, of our society.
1: Right. So it's, it, it seems like Women's Day, to take that specific example, was just as big a deal uh, in Zimbabwe as it was in many other Parts of the of the world in the Western world, um, it seems. Without a doubt, mm. who knows it might have even been bigger. You know, there's there's a lot
0: of noise being made about it. Um, a lot of those activities and days, and the the ones that highlight social causes, are very big on our calendar. Um, you've got a lot of local organizations, and a lot of non-governmental organizations, not not-for-profit organizations, plus various arms of UN, you know, who will be very actively involved in doing those things. And it's important that they they work on doing those things. So it's key and important for, for us to have those organizations that, that you know, are, are emphasizing things, whether it comes to children like UNICEF and mm. and uh, and WHO, et cetera. So, yeah, very active. Zimbabwe.
1: Actually, that brings me to another question, um, which might be uh, uh, a little bit difficult to answer. But before we move on to the question about uh, tech and the internet, which I definitely want to ask you about, um, how would you? I don't even know how to ask the question but what do you think of uh, the western world's views on your country and maybe even the continent but you know it seems to me that we're sometimes a little bit condescending or maybe you know we're trying to to help a lot of uh, good intentions and maybe you look at this and think Guys, that's very nice, but that's really not what we need. Or is there anything there that you can talk about? Or is that something that I'm thinking about because I'm from the Western world?
0: I think what you, what, okay, there's two, two, two aspects that, 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 that immediately come to mind. The first is perception. And generally, if you're talking to, an audience outside of Africa so it's not even just your, your Western audience it could be people in the Middle East it could be people in Asia, people in Australasia the perception of Africa is very much a stereotypical perception, you know I went to school in uh university in London and there were the odd questions how did you get here and I'm like, on a plane, you know, how do most people get here? <laughs> or the the, the the one where your English is so good, I'm saying, so, yeah, I'm a quick learner. You know, it was a 10-hour flight. I, I read lots of books and listened to audio tapes. And... So you have those stereotypes or do you have wild animals in your back and stuff like that? Some born out of I, ignorance, I some born out it, of palates.
1: I almost asked that myself, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I was like, so old dad, do you have like cheetahs running around in the, in the background? Or
0: No, so I mean, I, I live in a, in a very urban dwelling. And while a lot of our houses might have a big gardens and swimming pools and tennis courts, et cetera, the only animals you're really gonna find are people's dogs and cats and whatever right. other animals people might keep, you know. But not <laughs> not wildlife. Sure. You know, that very much we don't we don't really have zoos, we have national parks, we have game parks, etc. So people can, you know, you can actively see that. Within where I live in Harare, you know, if I drive thirty minutes in either direction, I can go to a a national game park or not a full-on big game park but you know where you can go and view animals or go on a on a mini safari mm. so we do have have a lot of animals and wildlife and we have a lot of greenery and beautiful nature in fact that that's one aspect which does fit the stereotype in terms of beautiful country large savannas great plains um, beautiful trees, mountains, rivers, the Victoria Falls. You know, Will Smith was recently bungee jumping off there. So we do have that. But then I think there's aspects when I'm talking about big cities and us having gone to to schools which uh, compete, you know, where you have students who go from our schools and they go to Oxford and they go to, to your Ivy League schools around the world and they can compete. Because that's the nature of the educational background that we've had. So I understand how people might not be able to fathom it because a lot of the the projection media-wise, etc., is famine and war in Africa. And yeah, that is a that is a real story, but it's 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 not the single story. Africa is a multifaceted. Zimbabwe, you know, has so many different aspects, you know, positive, negative, contradictions, dichotomies that you can't get your head around every aspect completely until you actually spend some time and invest some time in getting to know it. Then when it comes to your second aspect in terms of the need, you know, there there are real needs in this country. And I've spoken about kids having to walk distances. The other day I went to a charity event which was raising money for for pads for kids in rural areas because the girls of school-going age who can't go to school for a certain number of days because they don't have the necessary uh, accessories for, for when they're going through menstruation. So it might seem just like an obvious thing when you walk into your local supermarket, your Tesco, your Carrefour, or, or whatever it might be, and be able to pick up a bag of pads. But for someone living in a rural environment, that's a significant cost. That's money that they might not have. So this campaign was about reusable pads, and you know they they get donated to the kids. So those are real needs. You know, there are real needs around education and health, um, HIV prevalence. Those are real needs. There's real needs on on making sure that our doctors have sufficient funding. And there's a lot of money that does come in through Global Fund, USAID. Uh, you know, PEPFAR, which was launched by George Bush, that initiative in terms of of of, of cutting down the prevalence of, of HIV/AIDS in sub-Saharan Africa, those those programs are real, and they're active, and they actually do make an impact. So it's good that you have the the support that comes through, and we do have support that comes through from you know various multi uh, multi table donor institutions that come in and support. Um, Sometimes I I criticize in the sense that I think that it creates a moral hazard where our government might be in a position where they think that they don't have to allocate certain resources to things because they're going to get the donor support. But that's just a personal opinion. When When I look at it from a bigger perspective, I'd rather have that support and help. So those marginalized and vulnerable communities in our society can get the assistance that they need and deserve.
1: So you mean overall, uh, it's always hard to generalize. And every time I ask these kinds of questions, I'm, you know, reminded of the fact that different people have different opinions. But overall, you would say that people think uh, the help of the West in many areas is welcome and isn't looked at as something super condescending beyond what you described when you landed in Oxford and, and people were asking, oh, how did you get here?
0: Yeah, I think, I think it's important how, how it gets channeled. Mm-hmm. And one of the things, that, the, the buzzword, you know, I hate using buzzwords, but it's real, is sustainability. So if you look at any initiative that's, that's meant to help people, it has to be sustainable. You know, I'm involved in a, in, a, in, a, in a conservation trust which is focused around angling. And one of the initiatives that people were talking about is to say a lot of people who are in that community fish because they need the food, the protein. Some people fish so they can sell, so they can get money. But the question was to say, okay, how do you ensure that people don't overfish? How do you ensure that people actually just get enough that's necessary? And then people were talking about doing donations for food. And there was a big outcry to say, well, actually, you know, you create a moral hazard in that you start donating food and the people expect it and, you know, budgets get cut. You might not necessarily have the ongoing funding. So that was just an example to say if an initiative is there to make an impact, it must be sustainable. It Mm -hmm. can't be dependent on continuous donor support. So even if you look at it in terms of the modern world, you know, there's a lot more emphasis on on social activities that actually empower communities for the long run. And, you know, there's actual businesses that are actually commercializing social, social enterprise. Social enterprise is, is a business venture that looks at impacting communities in a positive manner and sustainable manner. So help is very welcome and very necessary. But if it's going to be help that makes a continuous impact that it be sustainable and sustainability for me is is is, is the key
1: isn't there a, a, a saying which is something like give a man a fish you feed him for a day give a man learn teach a man to fish you feed him forever something like that maybe it's not Absolutely. with fish so, yeah
0: <laughs> yeah but that 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 is true that yeah. is true you know, if it's a, if it's a one-off event like a flood, etc., yes, you can direct resources for that specific activity. But sure, disaster things like that. But yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Um, all right, let's uh, finally get to that. Uh, I, I was going to say trivial topic of technology, but certainly it isn't trivial. I mean, infrastructure, and uh, it's it's essential because it it enables so much uh, else to function. Um, so technology, I, my initial impression would be that, uh, your situation is that with smartphones, uh, the, the country started to get connected a lot more and, and it's the primary way people access, uh, the internet, meaning smartphones or, you know, feature phones. Was, would that be accurate or do, does everyone have a computer anyway and has had for? You know, twenty years, so you don't really care about smartphones.
0: No, phones, phones by far mm. uh, are the largest. If you look at the mobile penetration in mobile, I think it's about ninety-five percent. So, when you said when you say okay.
1: mobile, you're not talking about only smartphones, right?
0: No, no, no. I'm talking about across the phone. So, across mm. sorry, across the board in terms of your your feature phones and your smartphones. So with your smartphone, smartphone penetration, I think it would probably be in your fifty percent region. But and that translates into what you see in terms of your internet penetration. Internet penetration in Zimbabwe is fifty percent. I think it's gone down from fifty-one percent, so it's gone down one percentage point. So fifty percent is not not bad. Um, it's not it's not good, but it's not bad either. Um. So, what you're finding is people with feature phones have still been able to access things like Banyu, um, still be able to get things through that. I'm, I'm or sorry, I
1: don't know where my Banyu is.
0: Well, Banyu is a, a way of people being able to access internet internet uh, services using using feature phones. Okay. So it's, so it's what basically kind of serv- which services the low would data they have access, access. to? Hmm.
1: Low data access. I see. What kind of yes, services? Like, a, is it Facebook, well, Facebook or, Twitter, uh, Google,
0: Wikipedia? Um, so, buy new, um, it's 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 a, it's, a, it's very interesting. I, I haven't actually used it myself, but uh, I know quite a few people who use it. Um, you know, and about I remember reading an article the other day. They're saying about three hundred fifty thousand Zimbabweans still use it. You know, and it's one of the cheapest ways of of staying informed um it's got a lot of little applications etc and it basically allows people to have access to all these things in a way that uh, because it compresses compresses data right you know right. you don't have it, and your images and text so it's cheaper and it works on a lot of the old phones so basically if you has got an old symbian or android device they can still access that um but you know, When you look at uh, smartphones, without a doubt, smartphones are, are, are essential. And that's how a lot of people access internet. You've got a lot of internet on, on telephones. We've got cheap internet that's come about through the mobile services where people get an all-in package, which will give you, you know, a lot of data, your calls. Um, and then you also have various packages. You can even get a Facebook package. You can get a WhatsApp bundle. We call them bundles, which will give you access. What you can choose that? to get access for a day, or for a week, or for a month, and that allows a lot of people the ability to 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 be online at a limited cost. When someone knows that they just want to be able to to access WhatsApp, and then when they want to access data, they'll be able to buy a bundle that's just relates. It can be a daily bundle, you know, which they're cheaper, or they'll get their weekly bundle. So even if someone's got a dollar in their pocket, they can have access to the internet. Then there so, are a number of... of uh,
1: sorry, what? What? just to, to specify, uh, when you mentioned a WhatsApp package or a Facebook package, you mean you'll pay a certain amount relatively cheap and you'll be able to access Facebook for an amount of time uh, uh, unlimited, and but only Facebook. Is that yes. what you mean? So
0: yes. So your Facebook bundle will be the only Facebook. So all the sites that are 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 optimized for viewing within Facebook. So like when you do click on a link, it'll allow you to stay within Facebook and access that data. Whereas, you know, there's some links where you click out and they'll say Facebook will now access externally unless Mm. you have the data on your phone or data bundles or airtime. You won't be able to access that. When it comes to WhatsApp, the WhatsApp bundle is a WhatsApp bundle. You can even get a Twitter bundle, which gives you access to Twitter only.
1: So it's for um, specific so, services. How, how much does it cost, uh, roughly? Do you know?
0: Um, you know, you get, you can get uh, a monthly Facebook or WhatsApp bundle that will probably cost you about six dollars. Um, you can get weekly bundles; it'll be like two dollars or three dollars, and you can get a daily bundle even. Um, so, okay. and, know, and so Facebook is kind of
1: money. it's kind of it becomes like this. Uh, for Americans like an a o l kind of service where you only have access to Facebook, but then you can access the outside sites, but you're gonna use some of your use up some of your data in that case, but it's separated
0: yes that's it exactly exactly okay. that and so now, in the past you had you had a lot of people who were who were using whatsapp and using whatsapp bundles they're even sending sending documents. To each other instead of emailing it you uh, know so you could get people would get access to the information that was necessary i knew some kids who would change the the end of a file and make it uh, an audio or an mp3 file you save that file and then just change it back to an exe file <laughs> you know right it's because you could send it via whatsapp so now what happened is they've they've, they've introduced uh, fair usage policies <laughs> on uh on some of these uh bundles
1: <laughs> i see and and so I'm guessing that uh this kick started a, a big part of the economy um how is that the case how big is it is it like i'm guessing essential now that people use smartphones for everything
0: yeah or well, I, particularly in urban yeah, in your urban environment, you know, a lot of people do have cell phones or do have smartphones. So a lot of people are going to be online all the time accessing accessing information. Um, and and for example, WhatsApp, it's not just a social tool. Yeah, and I look at my business, WhatsApp is probably the biggest form of communication that we have going on in our business. Um, with our various stores, all the managers will send their their daily turnover information by WhatsApp. Uh, so we get that information and see how the different stores have done overnight. So I'll wake up in the morning, or if I'm still up when the shop closes, I'll have an idea. I'll say, oh, that shop did well today. That shop did well. It gives a snapshot, gives indications of uh, if there are any problems, overs and unders. It's a way to broadcast to, to to staff, to give staff information if there's changes on rosters that they need to be updated on. You know, you just have a WhatsApp group. You can have 256 members in there. Um, you know, When you have... Group activities, you know, WhatsApps there. So I use, from a personal perspective, I use WhatsApp social. It's where I stay in touch with alumni all around the world from my from my school. Uh, where I use it for business and uh, yeah, stay in touch with family. So it's it's very much uh, a, a used tool in Zoom. You'll find a, across the board. You'll have old people who will be on WhatsApp, and then know that that's where they can stay in touch with with their family. Mm. So,
1: so so you don't use it, it email really, for yes. for any of this. You email is kind of it seems like it's uh, it's an old person oh, no.
0: oh, email is definitely used. Okay. Um and I I am probably a borderline Luddite in that I I I, t- I tend not to use email on my phone. I will have I have I have multiple email accounts, but I don't have my business email account on my phone. Uh I I'd like to be able to run away from my mail or mm. and, you know have the weekend where I can can block off and so but, I but you will still have, have maybe WhatsApp, a Gmail like,
1: you still have WhatsApp I do. on the phone so and that's a, and, one and, of the many ways I mean one of the primary ways apparently you do business so
0: <laughs> it's it's not intrusive though mm. um, I find you know when you got an email and it's always popping up you got a mail you got a mail you got a mail I can leave my phone on WhatsApp and, and and that's fine whereas with email it's important for me to deal with the messages and okay. the WhatsApp messages. If they're coming through business, it's a quick thing to deal with. You know, emails, you know, I have to sit down and give it some time and consider. And yeah, there is a time and I sit down, and I do a lot of email and I'm probably an exception in truth. I find a lot of people now actually live off their phones everything is all integrated. You know, even my business partners will be like, oh, I've just sent you an email. I'm like, well, I, I don't have my tablet. I don't have my my laptop. They look at me like on your phone. And I'm like, no, actually, I don't have it on my phone <laughs> because it's it's, <laughs> it's just a personal choice. But I know a lot of people will do it. You know, you can even, like I said, a local plumber, he'll come over and he'll fix something and he'll send me the invoice from his phone. Mm. So tech is, is, is used. Tech is embraced. And I think what happens as well, because we are where we are in the world, that uh, we have a lot of early adoption of things, Be- and we also have, because you, for example, with our cell phone networks, we ended up building, you know, we got LTE and 4G came on quickly because we skipped a lot of stages. Sure. Because when you when, when the networks aren't as developed, you tend to jump to the next yeah. stage and they the go out and get the best and, yeah. best tech. Exactly. Exactly.
1: And so, what about the? the so you have LTE uh, everywhere, but the data is still relatively expensive. I'm guessing you can't. You don't have unlimited. I mean, even the US they don't have an unlimited. Um, but you don't have unlimited data yet. You still have to be careful how much you use it. It seems.
0: Yeah, it, it's expensive. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I'm I'm at home right now talking to you on my phone on Skype using. You know, I don't have fiber i've got an m p l s link which is slightly better than fiber and i and i got it because i was also an early adopter but in my whole neighborhood everyone is fiber a d s l has been phased out but it's cost, oh, so, it's expensive
1: so but you your neighborhood maybe is a little bit uh, uh more uh you know well uh uh not provided, well serviced than other parts of the country. I'm guessing, but is fiber a common thing, uh, at least in the
0: capital? Fiber's in in Harare. Fiber's pervasive. Wow. Um, there's one stage where you had uh, a situation where you on Monday you've got one group trenching, and then on Wednesday there's another group trenching, and on Friday there's another group trenching. So there's been a big, big case for infrastructure sharing. Because, you know, it's, it's a silly race to have every, everyone just laying their own fiber all over, the, all over the country or putting up towers all over the country. So, you know, the information ministry, which, which has uh, control over the ICT sector, was busy saying that, look, we need to look at, at sharing Sharing the infrastructure because, you know, does it make sense for us to go and set up three three cell phone towers in the same area? <laughs> right, right. So yes, fiber's 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 big. Um ADSL is still available. Very few people on ADSL. Um cell phone and, and primarily. Those have but just caps? to give you an indication. Uh, yes, a lot of them have caps, but mm. if you want uncapped, it's expensive. So I'll give right. you an example. My my I have a twenty meg, which, you know, is Average speed or probably slow by European standards, which is fast by our standards um un- and it's uncapped it cost me 100, 150 dollars a month wow okay, so that's that's a significant amount of money it's expensive, and you know if you look at the reasons why it's expensive, we're a landlocked country you know connecting to Seacom and all the other cables you know means you actually have to physically trench to another country. Um, So it's hundreds of kilometers. Then, of course, the, the, the early investors are trying to recoup the costs of their investment. So we've seen prices gradually going down. But if we want to see the big impact, I think the big impact will come from the mobile space in terms of pricing. And you've seen a lot of pricing wars. So we've got three major uh, mobile networks in the country. And uh, a lot of a lot of the battle has been in and around the, the pricing of uh, data and getting the all-in plans where they just basically combine your, your plans. And that's what's proved to be very attractive to people.
1: Mm. So what about uh, commerce? I think we're going to uh, get to the end of our uh, conversation fairly soon. But I do want to ask, you know, like, payments and commerce and is there i guess two questions first of all how does payment happen online Uh, is it like bank transfers or do you have other services Uh, i know there are specific phone services for uh uh, banking in africa and then uh do you have like online commerce being developed in the country as well
0: yeah so if you look at it Um, Traditionally, everyone who wanted to do a transaction, go into the bank, fill in a form. Uh, And so in our banking sector, we have what's called the real-time gross settlement network, RTGS. So if you want to send a transfer from one person to another, basically you had to go into the bank, fill in a form, there was a cutoff time, whether it's 11.30 or whatever time for you to do the transfer. That was the traditional way of sending money back and forth to individuals. Then there was disruption, and disruption came about particularly through the mobile space. So your mobile networks, you know, MPesa is one well-known example in Kenya. Yeah. Um, so all the mobile networks in Zimbabwe have mobile banking. So they have mobile wallets. So you can then now transfer money from one person to another via the phone. And that person could be registered or not registered. If the person wasn't registered, basically they would just have to go to an agent and they could redeem their money. Uh,
1: then how they do they up that, like they know, show the document on their phone or there's a tracking number, and how do they exactly, identify you have themselves a Though
0: so you have a tracking number, You go to the agent and say i' you know, I would like to redeem this amount of money." Um, I'd like to cash out, and this is the reference I've got, and you just show them the ID. So in Zimbabwe, everyone has a national ID. Okay, From the so, day you're born, you're assigned an, an ID number.
1: So the person so, would would say, I uh, on my phone, I'm transferring that amount of money to that person with that ID number. and uh, We well, don't even need you. to
0: have the ID number, just the, the person's cell phone number.
1: Oh, okay. And that translates
0: to money to your number and then they'd be able to cash out. Okay. And then the ecosystem built up where they developed a whole number of merchants. So I, you could send me money, Patrick, you send me a hundred dollars. And then instead of having to cash out, I can go to the supermarket and I can actually use that money in my mobile wallet and pay the supermarket via my phone. Mm -hmm. So So... that ecosystem developed to the point where it's, trying to keep the money in the system where people don't have to cash out that's one example then the banks also came to the party with regards to how people did it so you can send money with mobile banking where you actually log into your bank account and we've got a system called zip it so basically i can send money from my cell phone to any bank account around the country and it actually i think i've done it from one of my own accounts to another i think the quickest time was 30 seconds between clicking and getting an SMS confirmation that money's gone from one account to another. Right. So that's called Zipit. Then there's app, mobile banking via your apps. A lot of the banks have mobile apps. Then you're, of course, internet banking. And for me, that's the cornerstone of my business. I do all my transfers via via internet banking. So log into my accounts, transfer money around. I will have... All my suppliers preloaded, all my employees preloaded as well. I will go in and I can just do batches and I can put in fifty sixty payments, put the various amounts, put the references, click send, get a batch. I'll get a proof of payment, and uh, the money goes through to the to the respective people that I'm paying so does
1: that also we, what, work via uh, cell phone or do you have to do that on the computer? I'm thinking about the UI. how does it you know? Do you actually click? Oh, everything in there?
0: yeah. Well, it's it's hard to do it on on, on, on cell phone, right. um Because just the size of the screen. Exactly. Um, when you look at some of the different banks, some of it I've got pure mobile banking, pure internet banking, as it is is web based. Some actually have Java applications, so you can't. It's difficult to run the Java app on on your phone or next to impossible. Mm-hmm. And they'll actually even tell you, you know, the screen size not supported. So I will do it on my laptop, or I'll do it on my on my tablet. But in terms of actually m- mobile banking or or app banking, I could do that from my cell phone. Mm. No okay. problems at
1: all. Yeah, And so I, it seems like this makes it kind of mandatory to have h- at least a, a, a dumb phone or a feature phone. Um, what happens when you don't have one? How do you, you know, I, I most people do have one, I suppose, but
0: yeah i i think that's why you see mobile penetration is so high at 95 percent because cell phones have become you know an extension of an individual it's not just that thing that allows you to pick up and make a call you know it allows you to send money to someone send documents to someone email a person you know the other day i wanted to go to lunch i just went on facebook Found, the, found the, the restaurant, clicked the call button and calling through my reservation. You know, and I just thought about that for a minute. And I said, you know a few years ago I'd have had to go and pick up the physical telephone directory, <laughs> thumb through it, find the number, you know, go to the landline, dial the number, and make the booking. But you know, I could have even sent them a message to the reservation via Facebook. Mm. So you've now got a lot of businesses that have adopted the technology that have adopted Facebook are on Twitter or on Instagram. If I look at my own businesses, you know, I, I've stopped advertising in the physical media, in the, in the, you know, the print media, I will go and see, we've got an activity that's going on. I'll go to Facebook and I'll spend $20 to boost it or $50 to boost the event. And mm. the impact I get is, is phenomenal.
1: You know, we, it's interesting because we, we act- oh. oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I, w- I was going to say it's the same here. It's it's very similar. Uh, you know, we had probably more computers before, but the, this idea that the the phone has become an extension of your life really is is really the same here. And and I'm guessing for you guys, it labeled things that weren't possible at all before. Um, but it it does to the, to some extent here as well. Um, I'm curious, is there online uh, online commerce developing? Because I had a, a conversation with a friend from Thailand uh, a while back, and uh, he told me that online commerce is definitely booming uh, in Thailand, but of course, these are different contexts. So I'm wondering if there is, you know, even the infrastructure for delivery or for... I, I don't know, but is there, I guess... The question is: Is uh, the are the online uh, capabilities to connect physical entities, or does it also evolve into online only activities?
0: Yeah, online commerce in truth is very limited. There are a number of of companies that will you know let you log in and do your grocery shopping online, etc. Um, some people will do your online delivery if you buy goods online. But it is not it is not a big big aspect of, of anything at all. You know, you're not gonna have your major retails like Amazon where people are buying things online. You know, I'm a huge fan. I buy a lot of stuff on Amazon online, but not in the Zimbabwean context, we just don't have that here. So, so wait, wait, sorry, let that me, way it doesn't lose. Really...
1: Let, let me interrupt. You say you buy a lot of things on Amazon online. Uh, you mean from yes. Amazon from where and you get them delivered to Zimbabwe like it takes a week instead of two days. But is that? Yeah, exactly. So I
0: have the stuff shipped or I say I've got my my sister lives in, in the U.S. If she's coming, I'll say, hey, listen, I'm going to buy a few things on Amazon, get it shipped to her and she'll bring it across. Oh, when OK. So you don't get it
1: shipped be... to Zimbabwe directly?
0: No, I do sometimes. Okay. I do. And uh, Amazon does ship here. But then there are some, some sites, you know, the non-Amazon sites that are on, on non Amazon retailers that are on Amazon who will tell you, sorry, we do not ship mm. that to Zimbabwe. So I'll have to get someone to bring it across. But yeah, it, it, in terms of that, that happening here, e-commerce is very limited. We are still traditional brick and mortar someone'll actually go onto a facebook page or onto a website of a of a store and see what what goods and services are available then jump in their car and drive across and buy.
1: Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. All right. I guess uh that will sorry, just Oh, just, go ahead, yeah. Sorry Patrick, just a very interesting
2: caveat to what you're saying there about using mobile phones and uh, um uh, it, just to put it into context, living in rural Scotland here, working for a council, I I only just got my uh, work smartphone yesterday, uh, so um, <laughs> that that shows you, you know, that it, I think I think uh, one of the things I noticed in Zimbabwe when I was back there is is there are they're a lot more ahead in a lot of ways. Uh, Than some of the rest of the world, and it's like you say, early adoption is is uh, is something in Africa that I think will push. You know, missing out a lot of the lot of the big bulky steps before um, seems to help a lot. But um, you know, that sort of thing, like using messages instead of emails, I've been pushing for that at work for ages, but we're still using emails, and we're finding that emailing all the time is actually not useful you know we want to get whatsapp i want to get whatsapp i want to get skype working in 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 the work environment and uh, and there's a reluctance to do that which is very very strange um, when you know you look at how well it's being used in zimbabwe and how well people are using phones and using smart technology so um i found, i was just chuckling away in the background when you were talking about that and i, I thought it was quite interesting
1: <laughs> you know i i use email still and i have a preference for email you might have noticed in our Communication in preparing the show um, I, I think it's just an old old school thing, but I feel like email is archivable like i can I can it's going to stay there and if I need something i'm going to go find it. Uh, it, it whereas even you know Skype or direct messages on Twitter or all of those uh, you know uh, uh, just the messaging services feel less. Real, like not less real, but less, uh, uh, I don't know. They, 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 it's harder for me. I have everything in one place in email and that's easy. But if I have to use WhatsApp and Twitter and Facebook and, and Skype, and I think that's why I do it like that. But I definitely am in that boat of, but why can't we use the old thing that I've been using for, you know, 20 years and that I'm uncomfortable getting away from? So I understand that.
2: Well, you know, the most real you can get is is put it on a,
1: you know, get a piece of paper and write it out. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. Um, oh, one last question, actually. Uh, it's kind of like the Big Mac Index. You know, how much is a Big Mac in the world tells you something about the purchasing power of that population? Um, yeah. I'm guessing, well, maybe I could ask you about McDonald's actually, but, uh, I'm guessing it's mostly Android phones. I'm wondering how many, uh, I- iPhones people, uh, have.
0: Yeah. iPhone, iPhone's expensive. Um, so Android by far is dominant in the market and there's actually homegrown brands. Oh really? So you have... Yeah, so you actually have there's a brand called Gtel, where the guys have actually got Android technology built up their own phones, and they they do mass market, and they actually sell these phones to to a lot of civil servants and students, etc. And they um, manufacture they that, in China, brand, I'm like, guessing, but yeah, probably probably is in China, um, but they've actually brought a whole range of 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 they've got across the board. They've actually now started working in the in the premium space. And so that that that's been a good good initiative. Um so so feature phone or an or a smartphone is is not that expensive. I mean you can get a smartphone for fifty dollars, thirty dollars, forty dollars, you know, your basic entry level phones. Um, So that top end is reserved for the top end. So if you're looking at your Samsung Galaxy, your S7s, etc., or your iPhone sixes, that that market is very small.
1: Mm. How it's much very does small. a does an iPhone cost?
0: A brand new iPhone, iPhone six probably cost you thousand one hundred dollars, $1, thousand mm. two hundred dollars. Okay. Um, your Samsung Galaxy is probably eight nine hundred dollars. Yeah. Mm.
1: And how much for a Big Mac? We don't have McDonald's in Zimbabwe. Well, um, there so... you go. That's it over. I'm never going to <laughs> Zimbabwe. <laughs> they've, got, we've got,
2: they've got KFC,
1: though. You know, oh.
2: Is, uh, uh, yeah, KFC is a recent
0: entrant. So <laughs> we've, 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 in the fast food space, we've tended to have our own home brands. Um, and if you look at one of our fast food companies, Inscore, you know, they're a billion-dollar business. And they've spread their wings all the way into East and West Africa. So, uh, it proves that, you know, sometimes homegrown does work. So, if you're looking at your average burger, your average burger, mm, what do I say? $2.50, I suppose.
1: Oh, that's very similar to the prices we have here. Maybe a little bit. And when
0: I talk dollars, we actually use US dollars, just so so your listeners are aware. Mm
2: -hmm. (laughs) Uh, but if if you like burgers, uh, Patrick, you have to visit Zimbabwe one day. It's the best, the best meat in the world, um, best meat in the world, definitely. Uh, I, I heard a rumor that uh, Zimbabwe is one of the few countries that the Argentinian embassy doesn't bring their own meat in. They oh, meat
1: in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you've convinced me. I'm back on on uh, on the Zimbabwe uh, uh, boat. I'll go there one day. All right. Well, uh, thank you very much to both of you. That was the fascinating conversation. Um, is there any place online that uh, if listeners want to you know, get more from you guys, do you have any presence online or, or not? Maybe Bongai is that. Uh, you, you mentioned your uh, radio shows were available on uh, SoundCloud. Yeah, on SoundCloud. My
0: name is Bongai, B-O-N-G-A-I. And Zamchia, Z A M C H I Y A. See some of my previous radio work there. And if they're interested to know what what's going on in the Zimbabwean hospitality space, they can have a look at one of my businesses called Pariah State. So just on Facebook, it's Facebook Pariah State. That's uh, our casual dining and uh, resto resto bars, as we call them, and we call it the best bar in Africa. <laughs> I,
2: can, right. I can second that nomination from Best Bar in Africa. We went there over when we were there in November.
1: Cool. Well you might be a little bit biased, but uh I'll take your word for it anyway. <laughs> All right. Well what about you, Bruce? Uh do you have any online presence you want to promote? Uh I've,
2: I'm I've i I'm on Facebook, but I'm also on Twitter. I think Bruce Woodward 3. Oh, uh, on Twitter, and um, otherwise, I'm just a, I'm just a regular normal person. I'm I'm a bit of a uh, a, a Blizzard a fanboy. Um, as as we um, but, all. <laughs> um, so I've you know there, there's all that, but uh, you know what? Just uh, just follow the Phileas Club and Pixels, and and you know I've got to say thank you to Patrick for what you're doing because I think. Uh, this episode but i think there's uh, some of the stuff you've done in the past with challenging people's views on on you know and even your own views is is very good and, and i appreciate it and i and i hope it carries on for a long time
1: oh thank you very much i, I really appreciate that and you're kind of uh making me blush a little bit <laughs> thanks bruce um so well i i guess if you want to uh, support the show. If you, like Bruce, think that, uh, this show is, is, does some good things, you can go to, uh, patreon.com slash the club and join the number of patrons that are financially supporting the show. I would very much appreciate it. That's, uh, an incredible encouragement for, for me and for, um, the things I try to achieve with the show. Um, if you don't have, uh, money to, to waste on my, uh, on my endeavor you can always go to iTunes or any other uh, des- uh, podcast catalog and uh, leave us a review with a few stars. Uh, purdue from Sweden said excellent podcast with five stars a good way of getting to know more about the world. Thanks for doing this, Patrick. Thank you very much uh, purdue i 'm going to pronounce it like that um, and um, and I-, I hope that in this episode you did get a little bit of perspective some interesting uh, facts and figures and I really want uh, again to thank uh, Bongai and Bruce for being on the show it was uh, super interesting for me at least so I guess that is uh, uh, something we've we've achieved no matter what and uh, we'll be back in uh, towards the end of the month with a regular episode it will be interesting again with things happening around the world. I can't wait to tell you what's been happening in the French election and I'm sure we'll have other things to talk about as well. Again, thank you very much for listening. Thanks, Ruth, Bruce, and thanks, Bongai, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. Cheers. Oh, hey, bonus question. Bungai, bon uh, what do you guys think of Trump?
0: I think there's, there's been mixed reviews of Trump. Um, from a personal perspective, I think it's one of the best things that uh, has happened for a global political perspective. I think it shows that democracy is alive, strong, and well. It also shows the fact that people are unhappy with the current political environment and that when they choose to make a a decision or a choice, I mean, you see that manifested in Brexit, albeit some people will say they didn't completely comprehend what Brexit was, but I think it's democracy in action. I think it's something that should be acknowledged and praised. And while Donald Trump might not necessarily be the best poster boy for this mini-rebellion. I think it's, it's a very good thing. Uh, I look forward to lots and lots of fun with Trump being president. Um, from a Zimbabwean perspective, you've seen a lot of reaction from our local politicians with the uh, hope and belief that it might result in better relations between Zimbabwe and the USA. I'm not sure that that will necessarily happen because... As the same as Barack Obama was president of the United States, Donald Trump is very inward-focused and inward-looking, so I don't think he has a lot of time and consideration for us in uh, little Zimbabwe. But the takeaway is definitely uh, that democracy is strong and alive, and that people recognize and realize that they have a voice, and when they band together around a particular cause or individual, they can prevail
2: i think that's a very very different view bongai that you know i think a lot of people will think that's uh you know he's he's he just look from where i'm sitting in the sort of western world he looks like a big buffoon you know it doesn't really uh i don't know (laughs) I, i
0: i i understand that concern and uh in many ways when you when you watch his press conferences and the and the grandiose displays when he's signing executive orders, you 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 get that feeling. But what I'm encouraged by is that, you know, you look at the institution, the democratic institutions. Trump will issue a travel decree and the courts will turn around and say that's ultra the constitution or whatever law is applying then is applicable. That's that's the true test and that's the nature of a democratic process in play. You've got the separation of the institutions. You've got the robustness in place. You've got a situation where government is held to account. And when they do craft legislation or make executive orders, they've got to ensure that it's legal. It might not necessarily be something that we all agree with, but it's legal. And ultimately, you've got to acknowledge the fact that he was elected and he won an election and he is representing people, across America, whether or not they chose to elect him or not.